Today's the 25th day of May, 2023. It's the Thursday before the Memorial Day holiday, the beginning of summer for many. And uh, my name is Larry Lannon. I am a volunteer and a retiree. I uh, work with NTEU Chapter 49 on this podcast and a few other communications issues. So it's always good to have you with us. We hope you are preparing for a spectacular Memorial Day weekend. Uh, it is, uh, like I said, it, it, that's when people, especially in the northern areas where we don't get uh, get uh, cold, we get too much cold weather and not enough warm weather, and now the warm weather is moving in, people can get outside, and it's a, an exciting time of year. And it's always exciting to talk with NTEU Chapter President Duncan Giles. Welcome, Duncan. Thanks, Larry. I, I don't know if exciting is the word, but we'll go for it for this morning. How about we're excited that uh, warm weather is in most of the country and we're ha- we're all hyped up for a nice three-day weekend? I think we can all get excited and behind that one, absolutely. And, of course, uh, we've said this before in central Indiana, where you and I both uh, reside. You know, Louisville had their Kentucky Derby just a few weeks ago in early May. At the end of May, the Indianapolis area has the Indianapolis 500, which and I'll, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's, it's, it's quite an event. You can watch it on TV, listen on the radio, read about it. You never really understand the Indianapolis 500 unless you go see it in person and uh, spend some time with 350,000 of your closest personal friends. Exactly. It's, it's like the biggest one-day sporting event in the world, and you're right. If, if you're watching it on TV, listening on the radio, where they do a great job in describing it, um, it just doesn't do it justice. It's just unreal there. So enjoy the weekend. Uh, watch or listen to the race if you like auto racing. Uh, there's other auto racing, the Grand Prix of Monaco, for example, which is probably the biggest Formula One date of the year is being held on the same day as the 500 in the World 600 in Charlotte, North Carolina. So it's one of those days if you geek out on auto racing, you can spend the whole day watching auto racing. So uh, I want to talk about something uh, very important, and I want people to listen very carefully because... It's very easy for rumors to get started, all right? Stories get going, and and, and you never know how to handle it. I want to stamp out a rumor here. NTEU is about to elect a new national president. Our national president, Tony Reardon, is retiring. So there will be an open spot, and the convention in August will vote on who our new national president will be. And I just want to make it clear Nobody running for national president of NTEU plans to announce their candidacy with Elon Musk on Twitter. Just letting you know. Yeah, I don't think that that would be a uh, a wise move whatsoever after the uh, epic meltdown from yesterday. That was, I'm not sure if that was a sign or it was just like, hey, let's try and do this town square thing, even though we've laid off most of our engineers and Surprise, surprise, it didn't work, and it was super glitchy. Who'd have thunk it? As somebody who has worked with audio most a good part of my working life, especially early on, the idea that you can't get an audio production done nationally is a little strange. I'm sure they had their their story as to what happened, but uh, a little hard to understand. Well, let's get to our serious issues. We have many of them. 
And guess what? Last time we were on, I was thinking, hey, when we have our next podcast, we'll explain to you how the whole debt ceiling was settled, right? Wrong. It's right where it was the last time we talked to you last week. There is no resolution to the debt ceiling. I did see the Senate uh, majority leader yet. Was it yesterday or the day before? He was in Lexington, Kentucky, and some TV reporter asked him about the debt ceiling. Are you concerned? And he said, I'm not concerned at all. We'll get it all settled in time. No, we will not uh, default. And he just kind of turned and walked away. Is he right, Duncan? I'm glad that uh, the majority leader has that confidence because I, at this point, certainly don't. Um, I was stunned, literally stunned, when they sent the House of Representatives home on a break right now. This is something that has never, you know, we're facing in the next week or so, something that has never occurred in our country's history. And, you know, okay, well, you're going to be subject to 24-hour recall. You know, we need to get this settled yesterday. And I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll continue to say it. The debt ceiling is never something you should be playing chicken with. Um, it's, it's coming down to literally the wire. As Secretary Yellen has said, you know, we should could be doing it on June 1st. And something I want to make sure that everybody understands, because I've heard a lot of things out there. You talked about rumors earlier. You know, people are like going, well, you know, I know how this is going to work. If, we sh- if there's a default and it shuts down, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. No, nobody, literally nobody knows how this is going to work, how this is going to happen especially how it's going to impact federal employees. We don't know if we'll all be called into work, if some of us will be furloughed, if we'll be called into work and not paid until this is settled. Will we be paid once it is settled? We know all these answers for a regular government shutdown when we run out of funds, but a debt ceiling is totally different. And so I want to make sure that everybody understands how serious this is and that this has not occurred before, so we don't have. There is no roadmap, folks. We don't know how this is going to go. Well, I think I. So to, I'm sorry. I think I told you before when we discussed this more than once. In 2011, I was a manager of several taxpayer assistance centers, and 2011 was the last time we had this possible looming debt ceiling issue over our heads. And I kept asking my boss and everybody up the chain, what's going to happen to my staff? What's going to happen to our taxpayer assistance centers? What's going to happen to to, to all of our operations if there's a debt ceiling breach? Twelve years ago, we had no answers. Guess what? Twelve years later, we still have no answers. We have no idea what's going to happen. We don't know if we'll be ordered into, as you said, are we going to order be ordered into work without pay? Are we going to be sent home and not paid? Because there won't be enough money to pay everybody. That's the issue. And we've never seen this before. And our national president, Tony Reardon, has had his staff look at this and talk to everybody in the administration to which he has access. They don't know what's going to happen yet. It's still on the drawing board. and, And there are some issues about how much discretion Treasury would have as to what bills to pay and not pay if there's a debt ceiling breach. So uh, you are exactly on the money, Duncan. Uh, uncertainty is the only thing we know now. Yeah, I mean, there are certain people saying, well, Congress can dictate, you know, who gets paid when and the 
president or the president can dictate who gets paid when. Again, we're in uncharted territory. Nobody knows if legally they can do that. You know, does everybody receive a percentage? And irregardless of everything else, if this does occur, and it's the signs are already starting, uh, because, you know, firms like Moody's Analytic, who does credit ratings, have already been, you know, shouting from the rooftops. This had a definite impact on the United States credits rating in 2011, which is not recovered fully from yet. And, you know, once you see credit ratings go down, interest rates go up, stock markets tank, your uh, thrift savings and any money you might have in a 401k is absolutely going to go down. Um, there's just no, it's, it's all bad ramifications. There isn't anything good to come out of this. And there needs to be a solution on this yesterday. Well, there's another aspect of this that I've been reading about lately. And this is, uh, you know, you, you read reporters who cover Capitol Hill and the Congress, and some have better sources than others. And I was reading some people who do have some excellent sources and have had a good record reporting accurately about what's happening in Congress. And here's the, the, the part that I still am trying to wrap my head around. Most people covering this situation say that there's a fairly large group of Republicans that will never, under any circumstances, vote to lift the debt ceiling, no matter what's agreed to. And that even though the Speaker of the House is a Republican and presides over his caucus, that, and this, I hadn't heard this until yesterday, but this bowled me over, it could take as many as 100 Democratic votes to pass a debt ceiling bill in the House of Representatives. So that could be a good or a bad thing. I mean, it could be a bad thing in the sense it's going to be hard to fashion that together. And, and the, if there's anything good about it, it means that any agreement reached has to be very bipartisan and has to be a, you know, something both parties can live with. Uh, even if a group of people in the House and the Republican Party are not going to go along with it. But the, the, the idea that the Speaker would need up to 100 votes to pass any debt limit ceiling lifting, to me, I haven't seen a situation like that in my memory in the U.S. Congress. I, I can't even, I saw the same reports and I can't fathom that. We're not going to lift the debt ceiling. This is like saying, okay, guess what? I've decided I don't like some of the bills I've run up or my mortgage. So I'm just not going to pay it. Everything will be fine, though. You can't do anything. That's absolutely asinine. Same same analogy right there. You, these are bills that have already incurred, been incurred by the United States government. Again, you want to talk about budget issues, where to cut, where to fund, what to do. Understand that. No problem. You're going to have those disagreements. But to say something like, I were not going to raise the debt ceiling under any circumstances because we don't like it and we don't agree with it is is absolutely insane to be to be perfectly honest that is somebody who has absolutely no grasp of of a economics and b what harm it can do to this country well, we still don't know what will happen. I guess that's a bottom line, Duncan. Uh, it's This is still unprecedented. We've hit that breeze and been close uh, once, and it already hurt our credit rating as a nation, continues to do so 12 years later. Uh, so 
with this, at the moment, it seems the markets seem to think a deal will be done. Uh, but we have to, and you know, it's kind of what Mitch McConnell is saying, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you know, hey, we're going to reach a deal. Don't worry, calm down. But uh, I'm sorry, it's a little hard to calm down with uh, what's facing us in a, right down the road here. So that uh, we want to let everyone know, excuse me, <clears throat> the debt ceiling is being watched carefully by NTEU at the local level and at the national level. All watching this carefully. We're trying to update you on our Facebook page. And if you want to follow or like our Facebook page, just go to NTEU Chapter 49, Indiana, and you can like or follow our page. We try to keep that updated as best we can, especially at a time like this when news is coming in quickly. When we get news from our national union, we try to, to get that to you just as, as quickly as we can there and from other news sources where we have updates. Now, there's one other aspect of this I would like to talk about. There are many federal unions, and NTU, I still think, has the best legal staff of, of any of the federal unions. But we're not the largest federal union. But there are a lot of smaller unions, even than us. Uh, we're, I think, second largest in the federal sector. There's a group called the National Association of Government Employees, NAGA, or NAGE, or called NAGI, some people call it for short. This, this union has uh, decided to, to go to court. They filed a lawsuit. It's going to be heard next week in a court trying to um, question the legality of the debt ceiling, whether it, it even should be a thing, to put it simply. I want to make it clear to everyone that our NTEU lawyers, again, I have tremendous confidence in them, their ability to be strategic and to understand the law. Our legal staff does not think at this point in time, filing a lawsuit is the smartest thing to do. But one union has done that. We think they've they've kind of, uh, uh, how should I put this? They're they're a little quick on the draw on this. We don't think this is necessarily a good way to go. So, Duncan, I uh, just want you to say a word or two about the fact that uh, even though one union has filed a lawsuit, that does not mean NTU is not right on the ball and watching this carefully. Yeah, this is something that NTU National does extremely well. Like you said, we have an outstanding legal department. You know, folks have argued before the Supreme Court, things of that nature. So we're very well versed in the labor law. And they're watching this and looking at it. And so far, the consensus has been, uh, as you said, they're, uh, they're jumping the gun here a little bit. And this might not be the best legal argument to make. So we want to... Uh, you know, make sure that when we do something and if, you know, NTU's looking at every legal option, I can guarantee you that National President Tony Reardon and National VP Dorian Greenwald have our legal staff looking at every possible legal option that we have to make sure that we can uh, soften or stop the debt ceiling crisis if there is a lever that we can pull on this. So far, they haven't seen any, but you know, as things move forward, there might be options, especially if there is a default. Um, so just because NTU hasn't jumped into it, as, as Larry said, please don't think that uh, that we're not looking at this. We don't, you know, we're not paying attention to things of that nature. Absolutely, this has got us riveted. Um, you know, our legislative department is talking to uh, everybody in Congress and their staff members about the implications of this for federal employees, things of that nature. So national NTU is all over this. This is where a large part of your dues go to, folks, is 
fighting stuff like that for making sure that, you know, we're helping employees. And that's that's the one thing overall that I want to emphasize is, you know, in my reaching out to congressional staffs, and I have, you know, I've tried to make sure that they understand that, you know, we've got a lot of folks that go paycheck to paycheck and either not paying them or having them called into work and having to spend money on gas or food or whatever it is to do the do the work and not be paid for it is a tremendous financial hardship that they can't afford. So we need to get this solved and solved rightly and solved quickly. You know, one argument we see a lot, and there are pretty prominent people who made this argument, is that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution overrides all this, says that the government's uh, debt should, will, shall, I think, shall not be questioned. Again, I'm no legal expert. Uh, I think uh, the Biden administration, their attorneys have looked at this, and, and their view is if we start fighting this in court as the deadline looms, that you could get involved in, in a very complicated uh, legal battle where you could still have the debt ceiling breached as this legal battle goes through the courts, and there is a lot of risk there. So, And there have been some great legal minds, such as uh, Lawrence Tribe, a well-known Harvard law professor, who has said this, this is an option. But uh, if you look at the practicality of it, it may not be. So I think every lawyer that's an, that has looked at this has, has looked at it a little bit differently, but we want to assure you NT is looking at it carefully as well. And we see uh, the possibility of going to court, but also the risks of going to court. And we want to, uh, as a union, do what's best for the members and the people working for the federal government. I think that's the bottom line. Anything more on that? Duncan? Yeah. yeah. And like you said, you know, the options, there are a lot of options out there. Print a $1 trillion coin deposited into the treasury. So, you know, we can pay everybody. It's just there are a lot of options that are set out there, but the the best option for everyone concerned is for Congress to pass a uh, you know a higher debt ceiling and do it right now. Let's move on to another subject. Uh, about time we did, I think. Uh, we are seeing more and more federal agencies who are ordering people to come back into the office. Uh, you're probably reading about this if if you uh, read up on such things and on the internet from some reliable sources. So what's happening at IRS? Well, Duncan, at IRS, we have had contract language that's been in there for some time. We've been to a hybrid system. We Only during COVID, when people could not come into the office, have we had total telework. And now that uh, the emergency was has, has been lifted for some time now, uh, NTU's contract says you have to be in the office, I think, uh, t- uh, two days out of every pay period, which is a, roughly a two-week period. So that hasn't changed. So talk about how our contract, uh, the NTU contract with IRS, impacts uh, what an IRS is doing in terms of returning people to the office. Yeah, that's one of those things where every federal agency is going to be a little bit different, uh, depending upon if they do have an agreement that covers all their employees or not. Um, IRS has one. You know, VA right now is starting to say, okay, we're going to have our people come back into the office in their central region, and then we're going to have more come in and more come in. And you're starting to see more agencies come to that. I'm sure that there are many executives at the IRS who would like to see, you know, more employees come back to work. I'm sure they'd love that. 
are they going to have to negotiate it? And right now, it's not an open negotiation period. Um, you know, our contract is very clear in how the telework system works, uh, especially for frequent teleworkers. And, you know, that's not going to be changing unless Congress passes a law and the president passes it. And right now, as we've seen, as we just discussed, Congress is having a tough time passing any law that they can agree with. Uh, so I don't think that the, this is foremost on their minds. Um, you know, I understand that there are a lot of businesses out there who depend on people being in their offices so they can, you know, provide them lunch, food, things of that nature. Um, I get that. I totally get that. But, you know, we're looking at the individuals that we represent. And our agreement states that, you know, you can continue to telework. And if they want to reopen this at a midterm, which will be in, uh, it's a six-year contract, so it'll be in 2025, um, you know, that, that would take effect, then, you know, we're happy to hear from them. But until then, that contract is going to rule unless there's a change in law. If it doesn't conflict in the law, then that contract's language is going to stand and we're not going to have to change. I think we need to. You mentioned the private sector, and I've read a lot, a lot about what's happening in the private sector. Remember, private sector is having trouble attracting qualified employees, just like the government is. And so, when some of these private companies have uh, ordered people to come back in the office, they didn't come back in the office; they quit, or they threatened to quit. <laughs> so, you know, what's happening is that the the private sector is beginning to see reality, you know, in the headlight here. And uh, realizing that, yeah, they can order people to come back to work, but that doesn't mean they will. Uh, you know, go the government is trying to uh, recruit and retain people. So I think there's a balance going on here. IRS, I mean, I think it's a reasonable contract provision, reasonable balance with the hybrid system IRS has. You must be in the office two days every pay period, and the rest of the time you can be on telework. Uh, so this really started years ago with something called FlexiPlace uh, for the field people who were working in collection and exam who were out in the field quite a bit could uh, go go home, let's say, when they're, they're done with an audit instead of going back to the office and go home or they can stay at home and, and work on their whatever they're working on with their audit. But it has now expanded with the t expansion of technology into telework. And, and I think this... The service, as well as all of government and the private sector, anybody who employs anybody, has got to take a look at this balance and make sure they have the correct balance to get their work done, but also to keep their workforce. Yeah, I think it's a big thing. It, it truly is. Um, a lot of the people making these decisions, uh, both in the private sector and public, are our uh, generation, baby boomers. And they're trying to dictate these types of things to uh, other generations who have, uh, and I think for the better, a, a good sense of a work-life balance. And, you know, it's just this type of dictating is not going to work well, as we've seen in a lot of private companies who are losing folks. I, um, you know, in my interactions and what I've read um, and seen and heard from Commissioner Werfel, I think he's got a pretty good grip on this. I don't think he's going to be looking to uh, try and force anybody to do something that's not in that's against the contract, that's not in the best interest of the service or the employees. So I think we're in pretty good ground for the IRS at this point. But it is something that's 
interesting to watch across the government and other agencies, as well as the private sector for people who are, you know, hell bent on, you know, I have to have people here in the office so I can watch them because they're, you know, they're not as productive at home. Well, if they're not as productive at home, then there are ways to address that. You take a look at it. You, you know, if you need to bring them in off of telework because they're not being productive, there are ways to do that, even under our contract. But the vast majority of the time, that's mostly hearsay and you can't really substantiate that. And so if people are productive, and a lot of people are even more productive on telework than they are in the office because they're less distractions, why in the world would you want to bring them in so they'd be less productive? It Just for, you know, well, we need to bring them in so I can see them. That type of management mentality went out of the window a long time ago. Yeah, I've always wondered about this notion that, uh, yes, uh, if somebody's not uh, being productive or they're not performing well at home, all we have to do is bring them in the office and it'll solve everything. I don't think so. <laughs> Having been a manager, yeah, I've got to tell you I, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen too many examples where you bring them in and you know, they're not productive there either. Or, like I said, they're much more productive. You you make them come in, and, well, you're not as productive here as you were at home. Why is that? Because I have less distractions. I'm able to work more. You know, I don't have people stopping by my desk like, you know, a micromanager stopping by my desk every 15 minutes to check to see what I'm doing. I'm just doing the work. So, you know, I think it's it's something that, you know, let people do the work the best way they can and to be the most productive that they can. And that works well for everybody, the employee management and most importantly, the American taxpayer who we're here for. Let's move on to something else. We, uh, we're bringing in new people. They're going to training classes. They're t- uh, you know, once, once someone has completed training, there's another phase. It's called OJI, on-the-job instruction. So in order to have that, IRS needs to have on-the-job instructors. Uh, anybody that's worked at an IRS job will have gone through OJI. You, once you've finished your training, you get on the job, you start working, and that OJI is a tremendous resource helping you get through that situation where you're trying to apply what you've learned in the job that you're doing. I understand, Duncan, there's at least a part of the service where there's been there have been some issues with the OJI. Explain what's happening. Yeah, and this is in a large part of the service as well. It keeps it's it's getting worse and worse. What what's occurring, especially uh, with folks in SBSE, is that you've got um, revenue agents and revenue officers who've just been in the service a couple of years who are serving as OJIs. And people go, well, why aren't the more experienced people doing this? Well, we want people who are in the same POD. Okay. I understand you want them in the same post of duty. That's, that's optimal. Absolutely. But if you've got more experienced people who can help them remotely, why wouldn't you want to tap that? There's nothing wrong with people who've only been here in a short time, but they haven't seen as much, especially folks who've not been here pre-pandemic. When you've got them being instructors and they haven't really been in the field a lot versus, you know, people who've been doing the job 10, 15, 20 years, that's quite a bit of difference. Why aren't these people who are seasoned volunteering? Because they're not getting a significant reduction in their inventory. So if I'm a very seasoned person and it's like, okay, we want you to be an OJI. Great. I'd love to help out people. What are you going to do with my inventory that I've got here that you're on me all the time about, about overage and wanting to turn cases and wanting to close things? 
well, it's going to be a slight reduction. Okay, you're wanting me to help all these people, but you're only going to give me a slight reduction in my inventory? That's like shooting myself in the foot. So you're seeing more and more seasoned people saying, I don't want to deal with this because it's going to end up eventually hurting me either in my uh, appraisal or in what I'm looking to do further on in my career. And so they they don't want to do OJI. And that's just a morale buster that's horrible for everybody. So that's there needs to be a solution to that problem into making you know folks who are going to be OJIs and have considerable employees under them that they're helping out because that's what we want to do is pass this knowledge along is to give them a significant reduction in their inventory, if not take their inventory away. Short-term pain, long-term gain. It's a very simple equation, and that's a way to solve a problem. And there's two issues here. Number one, incentivizing people who are best to do this work to do it. As you said, that incentive is not there right now. Second thing is we have to think of this in terms of employee retention. If OJI is not going well, Retaining trained employees is not going to happen. We'll continue to have these washout ratios, which are very high. Yeah, I mean, it's just it, we need to do everything we can. When we're bringing people in and we're starting to bring them in in great numbers, you know, they're talking about, if it, depending upon funding, uh, you know, because some in Congress are trying to take away our uh, the funding that we were given to try and bring us back up to speed and improve our technology. You know, if we get proper funding and they keep the Reduction Act money, we're talking about 10,000 more employees next year. We want to make sure that they're properly trained, properly coached, and, you know, know the ins and outs. And without those more experienced people helping them, that's not going to happen. New people are going to get frustrated and they'll leave. And nobody wants that. Well, also, one last thing before we go, because we're about out of time. OPM has a new guide on uh, retirement, sort of a, a guidepost, if you will, on, on a timeline on how you should look at your retirement when it's on the horizon. You've looked at this uh, new guide. What do you think of it? I think it's a good tool. Um, P I, it tempers expectations, and that's the big thing right now for retire people who are looking to retire. The couple of main hits that I want to give on this are they don't start processing your retirement until your retirement date is official, until you're right there. The reason for that is, is that you can change your mind up until the day you retire. So they are not going to start that paperwork until then. And the fact that, you know, the IRS is going to have your paperwork for a considerable amount of time before they give it to even OPM. So it's they're talking about a three to five month process. And it also talks in this guide about what the hitches might be. And so I think it's, I think it's informative. It's a good first step until, I, until OPM, as they're striving to do, uh, starts to go more electronic and less paperless. But out of time, any quick uh, final comment from you this, this week? Yeah, I just hope everybody has a uh, safe and fun Memorial Day holiday and you know, keep in mind what this holiday is about uh, for folks who have fallen in defense of our country and in defense of democracy. You know, tyranny is a horrible thing. We see it all over the world. This is, you know, tyranny is a bad, bad thing. And the folks who have fallen for this, be it from Bunker Hill on up, have, you know, have 
given their lives to promote this this democracy that's the United States and and we should give a moment at least uh, to thank them for their sacrifices and the families who've had the, uh, it being impacted by this. My only final comment is that Duncan is right. He has it right on the money. Thank you, Duncan, for uh, your comments, and thank you all for watching and listening our chapter four to our Chapter 49 podcast. Enjoy the holiday weekend if you're listening before the Memorial Day weekend. So, again, it's been our pleasure to once again speak to you. Thank you very much for taking some of your time, your valuable time, to listen to our podcast. In the meantime, please be safe and be kind. Thank you.